I'm glad to meet you again tonight. It is uh, my intention to still continue with the presentations of the teachings, revelations, openings given by Jesus to the world. And uh, we are doing it according to the Gospel of Luke. I've been uh, teaching about the relationships between the teachings of yoga, the metaphysics of yoga, and uh, the teachings of Jesus in three major circumstances until now, some 15 years ago when I commented the Gospel of Matthew, then later, after about five, six years, when I commented on the Gospel of Mark, and recently, in the last two, three years, where whenever we had the opportunity, I gave commentaries on uh, comments and commentaries on the Gospel of Luke, this being the third of the Gospels. We are approaching the end of this uh, presentation of the Gospel of Luke, in the narration of the life of Jesus and of the teachings of Jesus, we are very close to the point where Jesus is about to come to Jerusalem for the last time, and uh, this week which he will spend in Jerusalem is actually the last week of his earthly life, because this week ends with the drama of his crucifixion and resurrection. And thus we are coming close to the narration of the Gospel of Luke. Um, It's always been a joy for me to talk about Jesus from the standpoint of yoga, since great masters like Ramakrishna, Yogananda, Shivananda, and many others, as well as great Indian spiritualists like Mahatma Gandhi and others, valued Jesus so much and acknowledged him as uh, being a kindred soul, a kindred messenger with the message of Indian spirituality. And we think that uh, here in Agama that the presentation of Jesus, the message of Jesus, rounds up in an excellent way the practice of yoga. It gives a metaphysical foundation, it gives a spiritual background which is wonderful, which blends with yoga. And besides the fact that we try to see how, because if yoga is real, then we must have a proper understanding of the human being, of life, of the metaphysical laws, and of the spiritual reality as it is. I would not dare to say perfect, because nobody is perfect, nothing is perfect in this limited physical world, but nevertheless as good as possible, as close to the full reality as possible. And then, if yoga is true, then the yogis should have seen the spiritual reality, the truth, in a proper way. If, on the other hand, Jesus is real, then he must be spot on with reality. And that's why uh, we always expect to see some things fitting 
brilliantly. And because the two approaches are quite different, we uh, expect very much to see that one presentation is showing the hidden angles from the other presentation. Like the understanding of the psychology of the chakras and other such things from yoga does not exist in the original message of Jesus, but uh, it explains brilliantly, it enlightens brilliantly so many aspects from there. On the other hand, with Jesus, we have this amazing thing that Jesus is awakening people's aspiration. There have been many yogis who were detached in a very Vedantic or Vedic way. They didn't really care if you are going for your light or not. They were esoteric. They kept their esoteric message for one, two, three, ten disciples, which were close to them. And for the rest, they did not feel that it was part of their dharma that they have to preach anything to the world or uh, create a sort of a mass spirituality. On the other hand, Jesus came specially for that and uh, his talent is exactly to bring God to the level of the most simple-minded person just through this love, spontaneous aspiration which he is given to people. And uh, given the fact that he is so straightforward, uncompromising, and he has this divine wisdom in which he sees through everything. He sees the truth. The truth is so simple, so clear to him, then I always found out that this blending of yoga practice, which is esoteric and sometimes secretive, and the teachings of Jesus, which are an open book for many, although, again, many did not understand even the first paragraph here will show us exactly how things were in the world of Jesus, that this is fascinating. I found out that myself and many of my disciples and friends in yoga, they had a lot to gain by looking into the teachings, words and person of Jesus, And that's why again and again I say, I think commentaries on the words of Jesus are very opportune, very pertinent, very welcome into the world of yoga. And no, uh, as the brainwashed people out there, I don't think that the Gospels have been adulterated too much because we find the same texts in the, in the Gnostic Gospels, which have never been censored or gone through some institutional evaluation. And therefore, we know by looking at the Gospel of Thomas and looking at the Gospels of others, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and so many others, we know that 90-95% of what is written in these Gospels, like the one of Luke, is also written in the others, and it actually represents an accurate rendering of what Jesus said and did. So we don't have that uh, fake conspiracy theory that somehow it was not worth it. I finished last time with 
where Jesus was encouraging people. He was giving to people encouragement about do it, do it, never give up, you know, and uh, that people should focus on the spirituality. And this was somewhere in the middle of chapter 18 from the Gospel of Luke. And the next paragraph is titled, has a subtitle to it, which says, Jesus again predicts his death. Jesus several times spoke more or less metaphorically about the fact that his mission was going to end into a tragedy, uh, an apparent tragedy, because in fact it will be a victory, a formidable victory of the Spirit, but uh, that from the standpoint of humans, things are going to be really bitter. And here the text tells us exactly this. After Jesus gave the previous teachings, Jesus took the twelve aside, so we are always told that Jesus had different teachings for his direct disciples and for the world. There were people in the world who he met once in his life, or maybe because Israel was such a small land, in those three years he went two times, three times through the same village, and so some of those faces two times or three times or seven times or something, those were not necessarily his close disciples. So we know for sure that Jesus understood this pyramid-like structure that people who are closer to him and who are preparing to become his apostles, although they didn't know it at that time, uh, they were receiving privileged information. They were receiving more information. We are being told regularly that Jesus, after doing something, he had a special session of Q&A with the apostles and with people who were close to him, and there he said some more. He opened some more. So definitely we can see that Jesus was knowing this hierarchy of information, of opening the information in a different way to different people. So we are being told simply, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, why didn't he just say, and by the way, openly? He apparently didn't want to say that openly at that time. And it's funny, because even when he told it to the apostles, it's more like an exercise in human ignorance. It's more like a demonstration in front of God and the whole humanity that information, when it is not meant to reach, it doesn't reach, simply. Because he says, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. The Jews, unfortunately, had a bitter story of persecuting prophets. There have been a few prophets who have been kings, like David the king and the prophet, and there have been many other prophets which have been treated badly. The last of them having been John the Baptist himself, the last prophet who recognized Jesus and acknowledged him, and then not long time after that, he was murdered by the local king. And the population did not rise in a riot to disqualify that king, because he killed John the Baptist. The population more or less put up with the fact. And thus, 
in Israel, there had been a tradition that although there had been a series of prophets, 10, 20, 30 prophets along history, which are like the backbone of the Jewish spirituality, nevertheless the population had been in a majority indifferent to them. John the Baptist, he had people who loved him and they went to be baptized by him, but then when the king killed him, everybody said, "Uh, what to do? No, everybody knows that nobody can resist the mob. If the mob, if 90% of the population would stand up and say, go to hell, stupid king, then he would have to go. There is no military power which can keep in check 90% of the population of a country. There are no prisons, there is no restriction which can dominate 90% of the population of a country. But the fact is that 90% of the population of a country never raised for the prophets, never raised for John the Baptist, and of course, as we know, it never raised for Jesus himself. This is the nature of the mob. It shows that we live in Kali Yuga. If you would go to Shambhala and try to persecute one of the spiritual leaders in Shambhala, it is presumed that the people from Shambhala would have the backbone to stand up and say, this is unacceptable, it cannot happen. But on the planet Earth, in Kali Yuga, people are having so much egocentrism, and they just focus on their own personal problems, that they do not have the... uh, presence of spirit to defend what is spiritual, to take a bullet, to go and support what is spiritual. Uh, Jesus, if he is so great, then he can sort out things for himself, because after all, he is the son of God. No, they crucified him, and then they told him, if you are the son of God, why can't you save yourself? This is Kali Yuga. This is really bad. It's really Kali Yuga. So, um, the prophets had written often that we, if we, the prophets, got treated so badly, sometimes, many of them, not all of them, and not all the time, then when the real thing will come, the Messiah, the ultimate Savior, he will be treated even worse than all of us, because he will be more powerful, he will be more straightforward, he will be more in the face of people, and people will definitely not feel comfortable with such a one, because such a one will be very offensive for any little demon that is hidden in people's daily lives. So he said everything that is written uh, by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. And then he clarifies, it's not like, oh, people did not understand because they didn't know about the prophet. Peter was a fisherman, and when did he read about the prophets? He was a member of the local synagogue, of course he should have listened. But okay, he was a fisherman, he was not there, you know, his spirituality at the time when he didn't meet Jesus was very low. So we can, but Jesus is explicitating. He says he will be handed over to the Gentiles. That already was a huge crime because the Jews thought that they were the chosen people and at that time they were, no, and uh, that they should not mix, like even the Romans, not to mention uh, the others, all the Phoenicians and uh, Samaritans and all the other Gentiles called the non-Jews, they were considered to be one layer lower because the Jews were monotheistic and they had discovered mentally the idea of God, 
like they knew that God, there was a God above everything else. And the others, the Gentiles, be they Roman, Greek, Phoenicians, or Samaritans, they did not know. Their mind was not open to that. They were worshipping deities. Their spirituality was going as far as deities. So spiritually, this was a very puritanic difference. It was a very big difference. You know, because like we have a spirituality which goes way beyond the spirituality of other people. No, because if you just think that the gods, the gods from the lower causal and maybe some gods from the higher causal, they are uh, the cause, they are the determinants of the whole game, the rulers of the game, that's still a very big ignorance. And thus, uh, the Jews consider themselves privileged to the Gentiles and they said don't mix with the Gentiles. There are in the Talmud even bitter paragraphs in which the Gentiles are described as cattle. They are described as animals. No? And there are you know, some, some of the egoistic Jewish priests who deviated in their religion from this. They went strictly on Manipura and they said, you know, a Gentile is like a cow. If you steal from a Gentile, it's not considered that you steal when God said you shall not steal, he means a Jew should not steal from another Jew because only Jews are human beings and the Gentiles are cattle. When God said you should not fuck the wife of your neighbor, he means a Jew should not fuck the wife of another Jew. But actually if you fuck the Jew of a Gentile, that's cattle. You have been doing zoophilia or something. It doesn't go against the Ten Commandments. Such things do exist and they are confirmed historically and scholarly. And uh, they are confirmed by the Jews themselves, by the Jewish scholars themselves. And thus, they show, but they show how bitter was the difference which the Jews made between them and the others. Like they were exactly like the caste system in India. You know, if you are a Brahmin, you should absolutely not mingle with anybody else and with anything else. There was a Puritanic wall, you know, that you, if you mix, you lose your privileges, you lose your purity and you will be polluted and the Jews for the sake of not being polluted they had these very strict rules and the fact that a Jew should be given to the Romans or to whoever and say you can take this guy and kill him we don't care was considered to be an offense like the Jews for themselves and until today there are Jewish sects which go like this they considered themselves first class citizens and all the rest of the world is second class citizens Like they were the chosen ones. Okay, history has changed a lot of things. But at that time in their community, they considered themselves very special. And the fact that one of them will be just given to the Gentiles, it's much worse than it sounds for the European or Western reader of today. It's a terrible offense. Because you are giving one of, it's exactly like you would give a Roman citizen to be judged by the Zulus or something like that. You don't. The Roman citizens were privileged. Even today, the American soldiers and American citizens, they cannot be judged by the International Court in Hague, in the Netherlands. The Americans didn't sign that because the Americans are a sort today, they consider themselves a sort of above other nations. Everybody can be judged in The Hague. Serbs and uh, Afghanis and so on, they can be judged, but not Americans. 
the Americans are above that. And the funny thing is that all the other nations who consider themselves libertarian and democratic, they accept it. They accept it. No? And thus I'm telling you all these to understand that there was a complex of superiority there. And according to that complex of superiority, Jesus being Jewish, he was um, he could not be touched by other people. And yet, he says clearly, you know, they, they are even going to do this thing which is inconceivable otherwise. No, like we are a privileged caste here, and yet they will give me to the Romans. Remember, Jesus had healed the servant of a Roman centurion. And the centurion knew. I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Like the Jews were forbidden to enter the house of the non-Jews. By entering the... In India, the Brahmins, if, if a coolie, if a par- pariah would put their shadow, by passing by, the shadow of the sun would pass. Over, then you are spoiled for the whole day. You are defiled. You had to go and do rituals of purity just because the shadow of a low caste had crossed your body. Had passed. What a complex of superiority. No? Question is, was there any truth in this or it's all just paranoia and hysteria? If it's true, why aren't we considering these things in the modern world? Like we lost any sense of purity. We lost any sense of propriety in the modern world. If it's not true, then how far was this going? Was it all just madness or there was something and where did the truth stop? Anyway, he said he will be handed over to the Gentiles, which was in itself a much bigger crime than it sounds. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. Like it's a pretty accurate list of what happened, and uh, it's pretty disappointing. Like remember, Jesus was just about raising the dead and healing the blind. He was on top. In a few days, he entered in Jerusalem, and he was received in Jerusalem like the potential king of the Jews. People were hailing him. Jesus was having. He was a star. And that in this moment of stardom, he predicts that he will be mocked, spat upon, flogged, everything, and killed. That's like, if I would be the, knowing what I know, of course, I don't know how they understood it at that time. That's precisely the problem. Being where I am, if I would hear that my guru is about to be killed and flogged, then it's like, I, I would go berserk. I would go in overdrive. I, I would be mad. No, like, it's not possible. And still, Jesus seems to speak openly. We don't know really if he used the same exactly words. But apparently, Luke says, and others have said in their Gospels, that Jesus spoke openly, that he made bitter predictions. On the third day, he will rise again. That was a bit unheard of. Although there are so many myths of, uh, I don't know, Osiris being resurrected and others and others. Nevertheless, death was for people something irreversible still. And thus, 
the fact that somebody would die and come back as a physical person, not a mythological character, not a statue from Egypt, Osiris. You know, who was The statues were 32 meters high. That was not a human being. It was a giant looking strange, depicted in a statue. Maybe it was uh, aliens from another galaxy who came and they could resurrect or they were having states of clinical death. Like, we don't know. No, it's easy to speak about a myth that some mythological character resurrected. But physical people that we live with, never, ever. No, we don't find that. And still, and Jesus says, then the third day he will rise again. In which way? We don't know. It was all very foggy because people didn't have anything to relate to. And the next paragraph is, is the whole thing. The disciples did not understand any of this. Like, how can Jesus say that and you don't understand? Like, okay, you don't understand the thing that he will rise the third day. But he said he, the son of man, he will be handed to the Gentiles, mocked, insulted, spat, flogged, and killed. Like, what is there not to understand in this? Because it seems crystal clear. Of course, a prediction is always very clear after it happened. And I do not deny the fact that the language of the gospel is a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, okay, afterwards, it's easy to write and you just modify the words a little bit and then it appears that Jesus spoke clearly. Or maybe Jesus spoke unclearly. But if you are with such a powerful guru, like who has seen a more powerful guru? We are all pathetic gurus. Now you see Swami Shivananda and he's 120 kilos and he keeps eating sugar. You see Gurdjieff and he's drunk and smoking his cigars. You see Aurobindo and you have suspicions that he's on alcohol. You see I don't know whom and he is. You see Yogananda and he's a glutton for food, eating cookies and sugary things, although he is clearly overweight. You know, like, you see Ramakrishna, and he dies of cancer in the throat while he's smoking tobacco. And then it's like, because he has to come back from samadhi, that's why he's smoking tobacco, you know? Like, whatever elegant or insane excuses we find, even the teachers in Kali Yuga... They are a little bit pathetic. We all have our pathetic sides. I have. I would never claim. That's why John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Man, I'm not worthy to tie your sandals. You know, it's like, yeah, and John the Baptist lived in the desert and he was eating grasshoppers or whatever he was eating. You know, it's like, and he seemed to be a tough guy. And when he saw Jesus, he said, I cannot... I'm not worthy to touch your shoelaces. You know, it's like, I'm nothing compared to your spiritual power, to your spiritual presence. Okay, John the Baptist could see because he was a prophet. He was a pretty much enlightened being. But with the others, you know, they could not see. And the thing is that whatever, now we can say that Jesus spoke in a metaphoric way, but as metaphoric as he spoke, you are in the presence of one like Jesus, 
who just walked on water and calmed down storms and, uh, you know, changed the weather and raised the dead people from the grave and uh, healed some blinds and some lepers. And he's telling you that he's going to be killed or something and you don't understand and you are just standing there. This shows the karmic blockage. This shows the incredible karmic blockage. We in Agama, we experience childish levels of persecution. Like in 2018, things have turned against us, not only I personally, but Agama in general, in all kinds of ways. And it was like everybody was stuck in the brain. Nobody really defended, exactly as they didn't defend Jesus, preserving the proportions, nobody really defended Agama. There were 200 people barking at Agama, and there were not 600 people barking for Agama. Maybe there were two, three, who tried a little bit, and then they got drowned by the wave of the haters, and they got intimidated, and they said, why should I spoil my reputation trying to defend something which seems to be undefendable? No, the same thing happened. So Jesus told them, I, I wonder why he told them, knowing that they were imbeciles, knowing that they were shut through their brain karmically, and that their brain was incapable to react clearly and properly. Because if you would tell, if you would have 12 disciples who are like, I don't know what commando troop or something, and you tell them I'm going to be killed or something, man, they would react. They would react. They would prepare. They would run in circles. They will say, our guru is going to... When Rajneesh was threatened, the Rajneeshi organization, the Puna, they bought machine guns. They created teams of bodyguards. They created the Rajneesh police. They, and they simply said, we're not going to die like Gandhi. Gandhi was an idiot. We are going to die fighting. We're not going to let Rajneesh be assassinated by some vigilante or something like that. Like people reacted on Manipura, it's true. But they reacted. But it's funny that it looks like these disciples of Jesus, although we know that they were great people after Jesus died, maybe because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, but at this time they were like half morons and half jellyfishes. It says the disciples did not understand any of this. But John the Baptist had just been killed six months ago or something. How is it possible not to understand any of this? Its meaning was hidden from them. So it doesn't say they couldn't get it or they were on the wrong track. It says very clearly the person who wrote this understood the laws of information. It says, its meaning was hidden from them. Who could hide the meaning? Like I tell you something and the meaning is hidden from you. It's obvious that there must be some force which is acting at the level of the mind. We are talking about a collective hypnosis. We are talking about Forbiddens, exactly as some information about Shambhala is generally forbidden. Shambhala has launched a collective hypnotic thing 
don't talk about us, don't find out too many things about us. Exactly in the same way, there is, in this case of Jesus, it's like even the disciples were hypnotized about this one. Because it says its meaning was hidden from them. But God knew the meaning. The people from Shambhala knew the meaning. The angels knew the meaning. And you can better believe it that Brahma and Vishnu, they knew the meaning. There was a level where the meaning was known. But even for the apostles, for the future apostles, the disciples at this time, it was not known. They, it was hidden from them. It's a formulation which shows clearly that it's not that they could not understand, but they were made so that they could not understand. In this, it gives you a formidable question. Which things are hidden from you? Now, it, it says its meaning was hidden from them. If this could have been hidden from them, and these were VIPs, they became VIPs in the world of spirituality, and if you go to Shambhala, you'll probably meet them in Shambhala. Therefore, which, what things, how are things and truths hidden from you right now? Because Buddha says the cause of suffering is ignorance. And therefore, it's obvious that you don't know some things, or if you know some of them, you are not acting on them. You are not living according to them. And then it is as good as if you don't know them, because you don't take on. Death is meaningful. Then prepare for death. That's why you study the art of dying, so that you do something. For most people, it's hidden from them that you can do something about your death. But many people who started the art of dying, it's still hidden for them. They knew it for two months, and then slowly they forgot it, exactly as you forget a wonderful dream, which you had at some point, and then six years later, you barely remember that you had that dream. Thus, its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. So the man tells them, I'm going to be delivered to the non-Jews who will mock me, beat me, spit me, flog me, and kill me. And after three days, I'll come back. And people are saying like, Huh? 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 Like, what the fuck are we talking about? This is something which happens in the world of spirituality. Remember, because karma is very intense when it comes to the big spiritual issues. And because the karma is very intense, some things can be hidden in uh, formidable ways. In formidable ways. The gurus generally try to open you karmically. No, we don't manage to do it once, like, you know, stay with me for one week and I'll tell you everything you know, then go. No, I could probably sum up yoga and all the knowledge of yoga and have a brochure and something given to you and teach most of the 90% of the metaphysics of everything in one week and then let you go. But what will happen is then in two months that brochure will be on a shelf 
and you will remember this as a dream. That's why the gurus need to be with you for a year, two years, 10 years, 12 years, 20 years, 40 years, whatever it takes, so that you can come back to those truths and practice some more and try again and reawaken your aspiration and go into those things until you cross a certain threshold. And when you cross that threshold, then maybe that knowledge will stay with you. The person is spiritually awakened. But otherwise, it's like the disciples didn't know what he was talking about. These were the disciples. What to mean about the villagers? The people that he met two, three times in his life. What they were understanding. They were understanding pretty much nothing. This is the sad truth about how things are going. That in spirituality, karma is very radical. And the gurus are, that's why we are trying to open your mind step by step. At least if I know that you understood about this. I don't know. Vegetarianism, purity of your nadis, uh, um, ahimsa and uh, the yamas and niyamas and other things. At least we take you to, from level A to level B. From level B to level C. And in this way, in two years, in four years, in six years. And then maybe studying Kashmiri Shaivism big time. We manage to take you to the higher levels and keep you there. Keep you there. Even a guru is trying to open the eyes, the karmic eyes of their students, gradually. Theoretically, they could do it in a week, but then it would be followed by forgetfulness. Unless the student is Milarepa reincarnated or... Sri Aurobindo reincarnated and then of course you can have an exceptional student to who the teacher speaks a little bit and then it's like with Laleshwari. My guru told me that I am Shiva and I believed him. That was an easy case. That was an easy student, you know, but for others it hasn't been so easy. Even Yogananda who at the age of seven wanted to be a yogi so definitely he had some skaras from previous lives he had to spend a good number of years with Yukteswar in his ashram in Kolkata or wherever it was. And it was not always comfortable. He tells us that Yukteswar was a nagging person very often and he had unrealistic expectations. And he told him, you can just leave. If you don't like it, just go. The door is open. You know, like He was a bit of a jerk. He was an uncomfortable person. You know, like Even Yogananda tells us that he had to fight for his own awakening. It lasted years and years, and he had to fight, and sometimes even his own guru was a pain in the neck for him. So that's why, think about this, if Jesus told to people he was going to be killed, and it says its meaning was hidden from them. These were people who were making pee together with Jesus when they had a pee break, you know? They were pee because we assume Jesus was making pee because otherwise the Gospels would have said, and this incredible son of man, not only he walked on water, nobody has ever seen him peeing, you know. 
Obviously he was like everybody else. That's why it's not mentioned. Because it was a, it's a daily thing. Which is absolutely banal and so on. And it was not worth mentioning. You know, It would have been worth mentioning if it didn't happen. Then it would have been like, whoa, you know, we never saw this. It is said about Alexander the Great. That Alexander the Great, in battles, military campaigns, in the old-fashioned way, in tropical countries like he went to Persia and the Middle East and so on, his body was not smelling. His body was always smelling in a perfumed way. The sweat of Alexander the Great was smelling in an agreeable way. Even when it was two years, two days old. No? Which is not normal. That's why people said that Alexander was a god. That he had some DNA of the gods in him. That he was a very spe- That his mom may have procreated him with Zeus or God knows with whom. Or some, because he was having even physically some characteristics which were like, whoa, you know, this guy is not like the rest of the world. No? So in the same way, I am speaking about this, that the disciples, it was hidden from them. But what is hidden from us right now? Jesus spoke to them openly. They saw him, they ate with him, they slept with him. And this guy tells you, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and that's going to be the Big Bang. And people are saying nothing, you know. Only Peter at some point, he says, well, if you go and you're going, it's going to be a Big Bang. Maybe you shouldn't go. At least one reacted, not like a jellyfish, you know. Like at least one said, well, we don't understand what you tell us quite clearly. But if it's a danger for you in Jerusalem, then why go to Jerusalem? And Jesus rebuked him. But what if all 12 of them would have stood against him and said, Jesus, you know, like, what if they would have been awake? But interesting, collective hypnosis from above. God, don't forget that the first action of God is obscuration, that God hides from himself. No? So God is the author of ignorance and maya, as well as the author of liberation and spirituality and knowledge. And therefore, God, even for the disciples of Jesus, he made them be in a state of semi-ignorance. They knew more than most people. They had to have faith because this guy was walking on water right in front of them. But they sometimes did not understand elementary things. As Jesus approached Jericho, so we know now that Jesus was coming from the east towards Jerusalem, because Jericho is a city which is placed approximately, I don't know, 20, 30 kilometers, 40 maybe, east of Jerusalem. It's straight east, and between Jericho and Jerusalem, there is a canyon which leads straight there. So there is a straight line from east to west. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. Because he was blind. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He did not say Jesus, son of God. He said Jesus, son of David, which was a very big thing. Because if Jesus was a direct blood descendant from King David, which he was, 
like Mary was descending, Mary, his mother, was in the bloodline of King David, then Jesus was royal blood. And by the rules of the time, he had maybe even the right to be the king of Israel at that time. So this the beggar didn't know metaphysics. He praised him socially. He said, Jesus, son of the Jesus, king, potential king, king, Jesus, have mercy on me. How did he know? Well, of course, the reputation of Jesus in three years in a small piece of land like Israel, which is 60 kilometers broad at its broadest or maybe a hundred if you push it, you know, it's like, of course, everybody knew. Israel is and was a relatively small country at that time. Not to mention that a lot of it is desert where nobody lives. And therefore, in the inhabited area, people must have been speaking a lot about Jesus when he did such big bangs in the last three years of his life. Remember, this is after three years because soon he will be assassinated. And thus, uh, the beggar knew. And he says, oh, that's Jesus. Probably he never had been in the presence of Jesus. This one, Jesus did not pass by that place or he was not there. The beggar was not there. So he says, Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. What is Give me bread because you are a famous preacher and you are rich and have a lot of attendance and a great retinue. Uh, give me some money. Whatever, you know. He was asking for, but that's what beggars do all day long. Ah, please have mercy on me. Please have mercy on me. You know, it's like it loses its meaning at some point. It becomes a lifestyle. No? And so he says, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped. Like he was shouting so loud that eventually Jesus overheard. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. See, he behaves like a king. Although Jesus is generally a very humble person, now he was surrounded by a hundred people. He was walking towards Jericho and then Jerusalem. And Jesus was uh, therefore busy. And he understood, like if you would put Jesus the king of Shambhala, he would know how to take care of his dignity. We saw a movie the last night about Saint Philip Neri. And he was so humble and so simple and dealing with children. And even when he was taken in front of cardinals and the Pope, He was uh, living in a certain wonderful simplicity. But the question is that if they would have said, look, we all decided that tomorrow you should be the Pope, the new Pope. Then would he have behaved the same? No, because the function prohibits him. He has to uphold a certain dignity. And therefore Jesus, in this moment, he is like a rising star. He is like a comet. He becomes brighter and brighter. He is coming close to the climax of his existence. He is shining so brightly. And and although we know that he is simple and humble, nevertheless, Jesus, he simply says, what? And he goes to the beggar. No, he behaves like the sun. He says, bring that guy to me, exactly as a king would do. Like Jesus understands very well the dignity, and this guy called him son of David. Therefore, he called him by his royal thing. And then he behaves like a king. He knows, he has a, obviously, he has the Manipura, which allows him 
to understand perfectly the archetypal function of the king. So Jesus ordered the man to be brought to him. No, he didn't remember. He called, okay, bring him on. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Like Jesus didn't shout a hundred meters away, you know, because it would have been improper. Jesus understood. You can see that the body language of Jesus, which is between the lines, is perfect. And Jesus still has the compassion, the sympathy, the love. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? Like you asked mercy from the king. And the king is saying, what can I do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And the man answered brilliantly. He said, Lord, I want to see, he replied. That's it. Now this man had lived a lifetime of Darkness, of blindness. What did he want? He did not say, take me to the kingdom of heaven. Or There is a thief who was crucified with Jesus and he said, if you really are that thing, then take me with you to the kingdom of heaven. We die together here on the cross, you unjustly and I justly. Give me the biggest gift. This beggar didn't say, give me the spiritual light. He simply said, I want to see. You know, like the shirt is closer than the coat, you know, as they say in a proverb. You know, this for this man, the thing was to see. He said, Lord, I want to see. You know, Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. So Jesus acts very much because you would say, uh, Ganesha, give me my sight. Hey, I asked somebody who can. Like Ganesha is in the realm of the almightiness. Ganesha is in the realm of the divinity. No? So it's like if you ask Ganesha to give you your sight or something, you are perfectly legitimate. And you say, but Ganesha is not alive. Well, he is. He is omnipresent. Ganesha is here. He is represented by some statue, by some murti. You know, so you cannot say that Ganesha is not alive when people pray to the statues of Ganesha and they touch them and they bless themselves and so on. For them, Ganesha is alive, even if depicted in stone or depicted in a picture. No? So, what difference is it then? As you see, Jesus being alive, he has a mission to fulfill. And that mission is clearly... If somebody makes one step towards you, towards God, through you, then you can make a hundred steps back towards them to show that the initiative was right. Like you can amplify the effects disproportionately. I'm not saying that Ganesha cannot give you back your sight, but you have to pray to Ganesha maybe for a hundred days, maybe for a thousand days. Maybe for 10,000 days. And Ganesha can do it in the moment when you accumulate the merit. But with Jesus, it was not a matter of accumulating merit. Jesus was giving the 99.9% of the merit on credit to you. It was enough that this man... That's why I say, what an incredible thing to meet with Jesus. How often does it happen that such a man... Such a person, if you don't want to be sexist, such a person of history is there 
alive in front of you. No? Because he asked and Jesus says, receive your sight. After one prayer. Okay, it was a bit of a bold prayer. Like, son of David, give me, you know, like, okay, you know, it's like, uh, you, know, I, you know, I'm the king of Israel, but I don't manufacture eyeballs, you know. It's like, wait, do you ask me? I don't have a factory of eyeballs, you know. I'm just the king. But no, of course, Jesus is doing the spiritual thing and the blind man knows that this is the famous Jesus of Nazareth, you know. And he asks straight, Lord, I want to see. Like a child, you know, such a simplicity. You know, no twisting it and not being ashamed. And so on. This was the only thing which he truly, truly wanted. And Jesus says, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Other people had faith. But when you did it in front of Jesus, then you didn't need to do it for 1,000 days every day, 30 minutes of prayer. Then you needed to do it once in a loud voice. Everybody heard about it. Now it was like Jesus was pretty much obliged by his status to react to that. Because everybody would have said, incredible, he walked on water. And yesterday this blind man asked him for his sight and Jesus said, no, not you. You are not pleasant to me or I'm tired today or whatever. No, it can't be. Like once Jesus stepped in this role, there has been a waterfall of miracles, an avalanche of miracles. The only time when Jesus refused to perform a miracle was in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of the council of priests, who are all of them determined that he is guilty and that he is a sinner and they were determined to assassinate him. And Jesus knew that they were dark and evil in their hearts. And therefore Jesus gave them the finger. And he said, you are going to see the miracle of Jonah. The Jonah being a prophet who was swallowed by a whale for three days. And then he was vomited back out. You know, like Jesus would be swallowed by the tomb for three days. And then come out alive. No? And Je- Jesus could have done one last little thing right then. No, I anticipate. I think this scene is described in this gospel. You know, like they simply said, if you are the son of God, show us. Show us the power of God. And then Jesus said, nah, nah, it's over. I was doing it until yesterday. Today, I give you the finger. You don't see anything. Like, why? No, it's almost like asking for it. No? putting a huge pressure on those people indeed. And, but here he was in his uh, meteoric rise, in his shining. And he says, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Remember, this man did not have enough faith. If he would have prayed to whatever, we don't know how quickly his sight would have come back. Remember, we have had beggars in Christianity for 2,000 years who prayed to Lourdes, to whatever, the other place where Virgin Mary appeared in Portugal, the famous miracle from Fatima, and so many other holy places and so on. People have prayed to holy relics, to the spear that assassinated Jesus, to wood from the cross of Jesus, 
to the Virgin of Guadalupe who appeared miraculously on a piece of choir, on a piece of inferior textile, and so on, on inferior cloth, and so on. Like people have prayed to all kinds of miraculous things, and very seldom, you know, even in Lourdes and places like this, there is usually a miracle about every 10 years. A miracle, but in those 10 years, a million people come by, more than a million people. Why doesn't happen a miracle every time? No, because those people don't have the credit, don't have the merit. God does not consider that it's the moment to impress the crowds in any way. And Jesus, but Jesus was freelance. Jesus was freestyle. No, like you told him, he knew he had this credit from God. This guy prayed him a little bit. Oh, son of, maybe he was a bit uh, hypocrite. We don't know. But Jesus considered Okay, you have enough faith, you call for me, you called me nicely, you used nice names for me, you called me son of David and so on. Here it is. Bang! It was not for him. Of course he benefited. But it was for the soul of millions and millions who hear this story and they realize, wow. So Jesus worked very much like an amplifier. Usually in the world of faith, when we look at the history, things are happening much less. Miracles do happen, but they require a certain accumulation of energy, a certain accumulation of karma, a certain accumulation of merit. Or they happen in historic moments, like the Virgin Mary appeared in Fatima, and nobody knows why. What's so important about a fucking village in a Portuguese countryside? You know, why Fatima? And then he appeared in a place called Medjugorje in the ex-Yugoslavia. I don't even remember. It's Serbia, Croatia, whichever of them. One of those stupid countries where they killed each other. And Virgin Mary, even from the time of communism, before the war in Yugoslavia, was appearing every day at a fixed hour to a group of six children and giving them a short message every day for 20 years. Why in Medjugorje? Why not in Jerusalem? Why not in Constantinople? Why not in Kiev? Why not in, you know, like, why in a fucking village of Medjugorje? You know, that's why I say we don't understand how God works. We don't even know if there is something to understand because God is supra-rational. It's reason and more than reason. It's the svatantriya, the freedom of God. The grace, therefore, is the incomprehensible. There. It's, you can simply say God is subjective and chose to do that. Fatima and Medjugorje. Why not Paris and London? Why not Paris and Rome? Well, Medjugorje and Fatima, are you kidding me? You know, and uh, Lourdes, you know. Three very big places, you know, which nobody would have heard about them on the map of the world if these things wouldn't have happened there. And that's why, no, please understand, Jesus works as an amplifier. He gives credit. He wants to give faith to people. And he says, look how simple it is. In fact, it's not that simple. But Jesus made it look simple because people need to be encouraged. People, you say, you do the right prayer at the right place at the right time, and God may very well answer to you. 
This was the chance of meeting Jesus physically. For God's sake, that rich man, he said, what shall I do? And he said, obey the Ten Commandments. He said, I did that already. I have a correct life. And then he said, okay, then like Jesus up the ante. You know, he simply said, then sell everything you have and come and follow me. This rich man, if he sold everything he had and followed Jesus, today he would be in the history books. He would be one of the apostles of Jesus. He didn't do that, you know. So this was the chance of meeting Jesus. With the gurus, if you meet Milarepa of St. Mark of Ethiopia or one of those, maybe Abhinava Gupta and so on, it's a little bit like you met with Jesus. If you meet with Shivananda, Yogananda, Aurobindo, the kind of Kali Yuga gurus, it's still an amount of grace because those people have the Shiva consciousness and they are subjective and there would be a grace. We know that some people have been graced by Ramakrishna, Vivekananda, Shivananda, Ramana Maharishi and all the gurus which we know about in the last 200 years, all the great authentic gurus. So, there is a graduation of this grace, how much grace can come. And thus, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God, like this guy was a beggar. He had nothing to lose. He didn't have a house, he didn't have a family. What to do? He was just walking with Jesus, one more member to the entourage of Jesus. At least this one was super motivated, you know, because he said, my goodness, I just received back my sight. No, let me just be with this person, you know. You don't know if he had egoistic thoughts or not. He would say, if this guy gave me the sight so easily, maybe tomorrow I will pray him for a wife. Jesus, God, arrange for me for to have a wife now that I can see. And Jesus would say, okay, your faith has given you a family. And then, then after 10 days, I would plague him and say, give me some material prosperity also, so I don't need to be a beggar anymore. You know, and Jesus would have said, okay, a miracle will happen and somebody will offer you for free a piece of land so you can become a farmer. You know, like maybe it was just egoistic interest, but of course he had to stay with the man who had just given him faith. And when he saw how easy it is, you just pray to him once, and then, you know, theoretically, this is how every prayer, you know, Jesus said, don't pray too much because God knows. Pray in your heart because God already knows what you need. Yeah. But the question is that why did some people pray and pray and pray and pray and nothing happened? How many ill people have prayed? Did they all pray wrong? Weren't some of them crushed in their hearts and humble? And so on, and still they prayed and it didn't happen. No? So therefore realize that not the whole truth is being told here. Like Jesus is uh, encouraging people a lot. His behavior is giving a lot of credit. No? But and then you know, in another place people said, Should we fast? Should we you know? Like why don't we do difficult things? And Jesus said, because now the groom is with you. The groom is himself. The groom for the wedding, you know. And then the groom will be taken from you. And then you'll fast. You know? Like he said, when you are with me, things are happening one way. When I'm not physically there, 
my spiritual presence is still there. But you will have to pray a bit harder. Then you'll have to fast. Then you'll have to do this, you know, because right now you live in a time of grace. Those three years and a half in the presence of Jesus, they were pure grace. Pure grace. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. Jesus was not sent for one individual to give him satisfaction. He always did things which indirectly aimed at millions, aimed at all the people. He was obliquely indicating to people what the power of God is like, and he had permission to show that power of God faster, amplified. No? And then, no, you would say, well, in real life, when Jesus is not there, it would actually take a little bit more time because your faith is not the same because of this and that. And, but it would still work. It could still work. No? So Jesus is just giving an appetizer, an encouragement. And the story continues. As Jesus, oh, I, I read that, sorry, next paragraph, we are moving already to chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. So already he is 50 kilometers from Jerusalem in the last major city on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. Now you know that the tax collectors, they had a dubious reputation. They were not like prostitutes and others, but they were considered by the patriots, by the Jewish Manipura patriots, to be non-patriotic because they were part of the instrument by which Rome was collecting taxes from the regular citizens. So they were considered collaborators. They were considered a little bit like traitors. And of course people were afraid because the tax collectors were protected by the police and by the military. You couldn't touch them, but uh, people were not very positive about them. They were a little bit of uh, inferior. They were looked bad upon. Although this guy was wealthy. He was a wealthy citizen, but in this case his wealth was dirty money for the people. And he was a short man. So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. So the guy, a short, a shorty, he climbed into a fig tree to see Jesus. Right? There were people even climbed, he must not have been the only one. Yeah? So there were people climbed in trees on walls because they all wanted to see this phenomenon called Jesus, who now was coming close to its apogee. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up. Here, here is the thing. Here is the subjectivity of the Shiva consciousness. Because either you ascribe that Jesus had 
an absolute clairvoyance, and he knew that this story will be told by me 2,000 years later, like this was going to become a famous story, that this Zacchaeus is a secondary character in the Bible, but he was going to be a landmark, he was going to be a brick in the wall, or he had angels talking to him and one of them said, look up, there is somebody meaningful there. Whatever, we don't know. And he looked up. Well, what if he didn't look up? What if he looked up and looked up the other way? And in the other way, there is a guy called George. And he said, uh, uh, George, I want to talk to you. No, it's like, what made him choose this way or that way? What makes God choose one thing or another? We don't know. This is the Shiva consciousness. This is the miracle of I am. This is the miracle of the subjectivity. That Shiva is Lord. Jesus is God. You cannot explain why. We can try to say there was an angel who talked, but who told the angel? Why did the angel feel the need to attract there? And why didn't the angel say, there is Zacchaeus and there is George? No, like why? The why is impossible to answer. Remember, this is the Shiva consciousness. It's unique. God is, I am he that I am. I am I. I am Aham. Jesus is exactly in that state of consciousness. So he looks. He looks because he looks. He looks because he is the I am of the universe. Remember, there must have been other fig trees and other types of trees and people climbed on walls and on balconies and on, you know. Why that one? And then he looks up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. First of all, it's a slap in the face to the whole village, to the whole city of Jericho. No, like he's choosing the prostitutes and the tax collectors, you know, like fuck man, you know. And he just gave sight to a blind man. Now he's like, what are these choices? And then we always try to rationalize. Why does he choose that? Did the angels tell him that Zacchaeus was a very interesting point to make? How did he know the name? Did he pass through Jericho last year or two years ago and he knew this guy because he was a VIP? Did one of the apostles know him and said, Lord, Lord, look, there is Zacchaeus in a fig tree. No, And then Jesus got the point, that guy is called Zacchaeus. Or he acted from the consciousness of God because that's one of the things of the great prophets. They sometimes address totally unknown people directly by their name because their name belongs to God. I remember when one of my teachers said, oh, I found my paper clip. And he looked at me and he said, if this is your paper clip, call it by the name and it shall answer to you. It's not yours. You have not created it. Everything belongs to God. Because if God wants, he calls this paper clip 
and the paperclip will answer with a voice and says, Yes, Lord. You understand? We all belong to God. That's why you have a name. And when God calls you by the name, you say, Yes, Lord. Here I am. Only God has that power. That your name is in the house, your name is in the book of life. Your name is written with God. And therefore God owns you. You belong to God. You are God's. And therefore, Jesus is like God. He looks at theoretically someone. We are not told that somebody told Jesus. It's possible in that madness. It is possible, you know, I can be a skeptical Virgo engineer, whatever. And I can say, come on, man. You know, this is not a parapsychological proof. It's not a proof of a miracle, you know. There could have been some... slip of information that Jesus knew that this was Zacchaeus, had seen him before or somebody told him or I can find 10 explanations how Jesus knew that that was Zacchaeus. But there is also the possibility that Jesus looked at him and addressed him spontaneously. Like he didn't need to think. He just came to him from God and he said Zacchaeus. Like, you know, he said Lazarus, come forth, you know. Like when God calls you, you have to come even out of your grave. Even if you've been dead for four days, when God says Lazarus. No, that's what the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims say that it will happen at doomsday. That God will call all the dead, all that have been dead, and will say Zacchaeus, John, George, Walter and Oscar, come up, come forth. And you come. You come because your name is written on your forehead. You are labeled by God. You belong to God. God can call the paper clip. And it will answer. In my situation it was about a pencil. I said something about my pencil. And my yoga teacher corrected me. And he said if it's your pencil. Call it by the name. And let's see if it answers to you. You Then it's not your pencil. It's just an abusive language. You know. It, it's the pencil of God. It's not yours. You are just lended that pencil by Maya to use it for a while. But it's not yours. Like your children are not yours. Your child is a soul temporarily entrusted by God onto you. It's The child belongs to God. It's a soul which belongs to God. You are just a caretaker. You are a steward. You are not the possessor. You're not the possessor of your wife. You're not the possessor of your boyfriend, girlfriend, anything. Because they all belong to God. And human beings start saying, oh, I'm the owner of it. This is my horse. Really. You know? Not your horse. You imagine. No, but God has takes precedence. And in this case, look at the paternal It's called paternal in hypnotherapy, the paternal style, that it is like you give orders. No? In hypnotherapy, for example, when you do want to do suggestion or self-suggestion, you can say, now you feel really, really relaxed. That's a paternal style. Or you can say, now if your subconscious mind wishes it, it can give you a wonderful state of relaxation. This is the maternal style, where I'm not imposing. But the paternal style is an order. Now you feel relaxed. Uh, But I didn't want to feel it. Shut up. Now you feel relaxed. 
No, this is an order. This is a paternal style. The maternal style is more like making room for it to happen. Now, if you are in the right place, in your, then you, are, you're, you might feel very relaxed. No? And then it's like your soul feels like, ah, I chose to be relaxed. But it's actually the hypnotherapist who manipulates with you by either creating a vacuum in front of you and then you step in that vacuum and that's the maternal style or the paternal style, he pushes you and he says, go there, now you are relaxed. No? So Jesus acts in a very paternal style. This, by the way, of the imbeciles who called us that in Agama we have a patriarchal style. You know, It's like... Uh, as uh, the feminists who were making scandal. And so, Jesus looked, reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, I must stay at your house today. No, he didn't say, do you have an extra room? Or, you know, he just said, it's coming from God. You know, God is inspiring me. I'm God right now. And I'm talking to you, Zacchaeus, my child, my creation. What? I, you must come down because today I stay at your house. Of course, it was scandalous for the rest of the village, for the rest of the town, because Zacchaeus was a tax collector. But that was secondary. The main thing, how beautiful it is, that God talks to one of his children directly. Jesus is coming and saying, Zacchaeus, your time has come. I came to you. I'm coming to you today. Like, wow, you know, wish I was there, wish he chose me, you know, it's like, it's amazing, no? And of course, there's a test of faith, but, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Like, this was a man, like, why did God choose him? He must have had a good heart, he must have had a privileged relationship with God in his heart. Maybe because people hated him in the village, in the city. Maybe he was more humble. Although he was wealthy. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. The eternal story. We have encountered it with Jesus ten times. That he was always going like the priest from last evening movie. No, He was sitting with all the thieves and the renegades. With all the dirty little children you know, and so on. No? And people said, why do you do that? No? So, people mumble always, oh, he has gone to a sinner and so on. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Half. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Like, how would you know? Well, people have to step forward and say, you've cheated me, Zacchaeus. No, and he said, if anybody comes and challenges me and demonstrates that I have cheated on them, now because my heart is so open and I'm in front of God, and God has called my name, it's like I'm melting completely. I'm in a spiritual openness right now. You know, and he said, I will give four times over. Or like, you know, I, I want to make peace with everybody. He realized you cannot be friends with God and that people are like this. So he said, I give half of my thing. You know, it was also uh, Warren Buffett gave half of his money to, to Bill Gates 
to put it in his medical initiatives. But maybe Warren Buffett really honestly thought that Bill Gates is doing something good with that medical foundation. I don't know to evaluate now the good faith of Warren Buffett. No, but the question is that this guy did it directly. He said, right now, you know, I give half of my wealth to the poor. In front of Jesus, you know, like Jesus was the guarant of that. Jesus was, you know, like he could not lie. And then he said, Jesus told him, well, you told me you'll give half. And then I heard after I left from Jericho that you've been a total asshole. And, you know, he couldn't risk that. His heart was too open. Everything was too good, too good to be true. No. And then he simply, people said he's gone to the house of a sinner. But Zacchaeus was having God awakened in him. I'm not saying he got enlightened, but he was in a state of what we call here in Agama, the awakening of the soul, the Jivatman. He was awakened in his soul and being so vulnerable, so open, so loving, so, so, so open, that's the word, you know, so, so much in communication, he came forth, you know, like imagine he said, look in what a situation I'm putting Jesus Jesus gracefully called me and he even said he will spend time in my house. No. And people are muttering against it. And therefore I'm making Jesus look bad. And then he jumped forward, you know, and he said, Look, I'm giving today, right now, half of my wealth to the poor. And he says, If there is anybody who thinks I cheated, I I'll give four times over, I will give back fourfold. Because he wanted to protect Jesus. Not for himself. I mean, he may have felt guilty of something. But now Jesus was doing him a great honor. And the people in the city, they said he doesn't deserve that honor. And then his soul jumped for like, you know, I can lose everything just to stay in this light. Just to stay with God. Like this moment is such a privileged moment. You know, like, I wouldn't miss this for the world. You know, this is where I am. I want to stay here. So he immediately picked up the challenge and raised the stakes. He said, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, he basically says, if you can say that I cheated anybody, or if anybody can come and prove it, because like this, everybody can come and say, uh, yeah, you've cheated me for a hundred million dollars. You know, it's like, okay, then I have to give you four times the amount. It doesn't work that way. Obviously, this guy was a tax collector. He was with his feet solidly planted on the ground. So he meant either if you, Jesus, say, that I have done injustice, or if somebody comes with good justification and so on, I will give not back, I will give four times back. Like, is this repentance? Yes. This is what John the Baptist was speaking about when he said, repent, repent, repent. Make straight the ways of the Lord. You know, like you can always fix it. You can always fix it. No? There are people who did great injustice to Agama years ago. You know, they can fix it. It's very easy to fix it. They can go public and describe clearly the demonic and dark things which they have done, the lies which they have said, and the exaggerations which they have supported. There. 
you know, but they don't do it. Only Zacchaeus is stepping forward and he says, Lord, you know, it's like right now my life has changed this instant because this is real conversion. This is real repentance. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Like Jesus gets him back. Jesus acknowledges him. If Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. No, that's all you need to hear. No, more you didn't need to hear. No, that Jesus himself says, because you have been so noble and because you snapped so beautifully, no, without me pushing you, you know, just the people are mumbling and you noticed immediately, you know. And because of this, he simply said, no, salvation has come to, not only to him, to his wife, to his children, to his, to his house. Because in those days, the man was the owner of the house. The man was the head of the family. And everything depended on the leader of each clan, of the leader of each family. No, today it's different. People live separately. We live in an apparent democracy. People have equal rights. It's another story. That was a different society. And Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. No, the Jews were considering themselves the sons of Abraham. The son, the Abraham was the one to whom God asked the first sacrifice and then God has made this rite of circumcision with him. And the first covenant, one of the first covenants, in the, the first covenant was with Adam before. Uh, but then there was the covenant with Abraham and the Jews always said, but we are sons of Abraham. And there is even the expression that you live like in Abraham's bosom in the bosom of Abraham. No? Like, that's paradise. That's the kingdom of heaven. It's a nice, beautiful place in the kingdom of God. It's paradise. No? And the Jews were supposed to belong to the bosom of Abraham. Like Abraham, by being blessed by God, he had opened a niche. He had opened a covenant and a lot was coming from there. A lot was based on that. No? And Jesus, by saying this man is also a son of Abraham, he praises him. He says, this is a real Jew. This is a spiritualized Jew. This is a man whose heart I like. No, Jesus obviously liked him very much. We don't know if he knew him from before or not. But in this situation, Abraham gave half of his wealth and he gained immortality. If you ask me, I think it's a very good deal to give half of your wealth and to receive eternal life from Jesus personally. Great deal. The greatest deal a person can strike. And he says in the end, the mantra, you know, in the end he always gives some of these final statements. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Like there were people who were with God. They recognized God, you know, even his apostles and many others, you know. But he says, I came to save what was lost. The lost souls. 
Remember, there are lots of lost souls in Kali Yuga. We deal with a lot of, lots of lost souls. God loves these lost souls and God is very happy when lost souls are found and saved. Now, that's why we do not automatically reject lost souls. Sometimes in the school, we got into a phase where we start rejecting people who directly harm the school if they don't apologize and if they don't change their lives, you know. But otherwise, you know, it's beautiful to see a lost soul. What's a lost soul? A lost soul is, you know, like Zacchaeus. He was making money and he didn't care about much. And people disliked him. And he looked back at them and he said, I also dislike you, fuck you. You know, it's like, you don't like me, I don't like you. I continue. No. And then suddenly Jesus appears and he's like a catalyst. Suddenly the heart of Zacchaeus suffers a beautiful mutation, catches fire. Suddenly Zacchaeus is in the light of the Spirit. And Zacchaeus simply say, wait a second, you know, it's like, is there a question about my integrity? which could upset Jesus that because he's coming to the house, you know, he said, Lord, I'm like, he doesn't say I'm giving everything because he has a large family. He's used to live in a certain style. So of course he wants to keep something for his own lifestyle still. If Jesus could have up the ante and said, give everything. And then, but Jesus didn't do that because for Jesus, the mutation was the key. The fact that this man mutated and he said, Lord, Right now, I'm giving half of what, no, Jesus would accept. Half is good enough, you know. And if anybody thinks I've cheated them, or if you can see with your third eye that I cheated somebody, I will give back fourfold. He could have said tenfold. He could have said threefold. You know, that was his evaluation. I'll give back fourfold. And Jesus says, I love you, Zacchaeus. You're wonderful. You know, because that's what it is. That's what Jesus is interested. He says, I came to seek and save what was lost. We are very fond. I, for one, can understand it because I feel it. And I feel very fond when I get people who are atheistic, rationalistic, ignorant, selfish, and others, and they change. In a day, in a second, in a month, in a year, in several years. It's so amazing to be a spiritual teacher and to feel that. When you feel that, all your life is justified because of that thing which happens there. I also have had students who for years and years did not change, did not have this click, this mutation, did not change their ways. They were egoistic when they came to me. They were egoistic still today that produces a sort of a a sorrow. You know, it's like, it doesn't mean that I don't believe in God. It doesn't mean that I don't trust that yoga is good and works. But sometimes it's sad to see that some people choose a high degree of stagnation in their lives and they don't evolve. Jesus saw this man Zacchaeus first time or not, He said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. People said, but he's not worthy. He said, I give half of my wealth right now. Anybody I cheated, I'm giving fourthfold, you know. It's like anything 
to just be friends with you, Jesus. You know, he could immediately see the value. He could immediately see the value. Zacchaeus won everything. He won everything by this one. No, because Jesus told him, now you are a son of Abraham. Now you are dear to me. I found you. You were lost and I found you. Marvelous, marvelous story which shows exactly what yoga and spirituality can do today. I have known through yoga a lot of people who are metaphorically lost, not only among my students, but among my colleagues, among my peers. All along my life, I've seen people who were lost, and then suddenly, more or less suddenly, they were found. They found themselves. It's amazing. It's one of the most beautiful things which happens. And like always, when my heart warms up, I can always talk to old students and teachers of the school like Mukta and others and just remember exactly such moments. Moments when the lost were found. Moments of awakening which are so clear to see from that point. Now you identify immediately with them. So may the message of Jesus help you all to be found, to stop being lost and with the yoga practice May you have success in your quest. With this, we are finished for tonight. We'll continue with the chapter 19, the verse at number 11 next time.